0: But this morning, we return to our study through the book of Genesis, and we come to a lengthy passage, and an eventful passage, beginning in Genesis 33, verse 17, and going to chapter 35, verse 7. These are the words of God. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came to Salem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel, that is, God, the God of Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attached to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done." But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son, so the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem his son came to the gate of their city, and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters, Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the plain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep their oxen and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed and the terror of the God, the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, God of Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Our gracious God and our king, we pray open this word to us. Give us understanding. We'd see, that we would know, that we would walk in your ways, that we would be your faithful servants and witnesses in our own day. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text today is one of the wildest texts in Scripture, and the interpretations of it are as wild as the events themselves. The key is to interpret Scripture by Scripture which means we have to know Scripture, or else texts like this become like inkblots unto which we project our own sensibilities. What God is doing here is giving us a snapshot of Jacob's household as the generations of Isaac, which began in chapter 25, verse 19, are now drawing to a close And the generations of Jacob are about to begin at chapter 37, verse 2. Now, the generations of Isaac and Jacob are the stories of Isaac and Jacob, but they're stories told through the lives of their children. Because in the Bible, if you really want to know who someone is, you look at their children. And it's especially the lives of Isaac and Jacob told through their children especially the Christ type whom God raises up in that day in every generation. And so what God is doing through all of this is he is preaching the gospel by showing the way of and the need for salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. God is preaching that message over and over again. So the generations of Isaac end with this slaughter at Salem in which not just Shechem, the guilty one, but every single man of the city is killed. Every wife is rendered a widow and every child fatherless. Because you see, Simeon and Levi care so much about the protection of women and children. And about the will and witness of God. This will lead to the cursing of Simeon and Levi in Genesis 49 so that they do not share in the inheritance of the land with uh, the other brothers, uh, uh, the, the other sons of Jacob. Genesis 49, verse 5 Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon, when the land is divided under Joshua, will receive only a few cities within the borders of Judah. And that's because Judah's inheritance was so large that Judah really couldn't even handle it all. So Simeon was given a few scattered cities within Judah and received no separate inheritance. Now, all of this, of course, shows the need for salvation, as does the big pile of idols which the sons of Jacob had to leave behind in chapter 35, verses 2 and 4. God says, come worship me in Bethel. Jacob says, maybe you should leave all your idols here. You think? It's only by God's sheer grace that he protects them from extermination. Chapter 35, verse 5, God places his terror Upon all the cities that are around otherwise, they were going to combine together and exterminate Jacob and his family due to what they did at Salem. Then God is going to usher in the generations of Jacob in chapter 37, and he will raise up a new Christ type, Joseph, whose, wife, whose life will show forth the way of salvation through Christ. And, of course, Joseph, as the new Christ type, will be warmly embraced by his brothers when they sell him into slavery, showing once again the need for salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. Now, these are our scriptural corner stakes for understanding this tragedy at Salem. These are the kind of things that when we read this passage are popping up in our minds immediately. Wait a minute, Simeon and Levi are cursed in Genesis 49. That's referring to this incident. Wait a minute, Joseph is going to be raised up. He's going to be sold into slavery. All of these things should be popping up into our minds. If you're surveying a piece of land and you get outside the corner stakes or you move the corner stakes, or you disregard the corner stakes, you are lost. And the same is true for us as we approach the tragedy at Salem. Only now, when we know where the corner stakes go, are we ready to look at the details. So let's jump in. Chapter 33, verse 18 says in the Hebrew that Jacob came to Salem, the city of Shechem. Salem means peace. And so you will find a lot of the modern English translations say that Jacob came peacefully or safely to Shechem. But Salem is a noun, not an adverb, and it's not meant to be used that way. The King James Version is correct when it says Jacob came to Salem or Shalom. That's the way it would be pronounced in Hebrew. The city of Shechem. So Shechem is the name of the prince of the region. It is his city, but the name of the city itself is Salem. Now, remember, we've seen this city of Salem before. It was the city where Melchizedek reigned some 200 years prior to these events. Remember, Melchizedek was not only king, he was also priest of God Most High who met Abram with bread and wine and blessed him and to whom Abram paid a tithe, which Hebrews chapter 7 tells us was very significant because when he, when Melchizedek blesses Abram, and Abram plays a tie to Melchizedek, that means that Abram is acknowledging Melchizedek not only as a brother, a fellow worshiper of the one true God, but also as his spiritual father, his spiritual superior. This is also the same area, this city here of Salem, right around it, and it's the same general family, the family of Shechem and Hamor up the line from whom Abraham bought the burial site where he and Sarah were buried and where Jacob is later going to be buried. You can see that in Acts chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. That's the city of Salem. And this is all going to gain in relevance as we go forward in the text. For now, simply note that it is not happenstance that Jacob comes here and buys land from Shechem's father and builds an altar to the Lord. Now, we've already noted <clears throat> that these events provide a snapshot of Jacob's family and it is not a pretty portrait. The spiritual uh, lack of health of Jacob's family and his children in particular began to show itself right away when in chapter 34, verse 1, it reads this way in the Hebrew, literally. She went out, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob, in, at, or among, the Hebrew can mean any and all of that, in, at, or among the daughters of the land. Now, what's suggested here, the drift of this, even though we don't get the details, is that this is not a healthy move on Dinah's part This is not a sign of spiritual strength. It's because it's not simply a visit. She wants to be seen among, viewed as included among the daughters of the land. And this is confirmed at the end of the story in chapter 34, verse 26, when it says that Simeon and Levi took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. There's that same phrase again. Went out. The idea is that Simeon and Levi are conscientiously and purposefully reversing not only Shechem's taking, but also Dinah's going out among. So this was not a sign of spiritual strength on Dinah's part. At the very minimum, she is sailing very close to the wind. And then we come to the relationship between Shechem and Dinah, which is one of the biggest areas of confusion, because most of the modern English translations make it sound like their relationship begins with a rape and then immediately turns into Romeo and Juliet. And so we're left wondering, well, which is it? Those things don't seem to really go together. Well, the modern confusion over the relationship of Shechem and Dinah stems from the assumption, pretty much unquestioned by modern commentators, that the Hebrew word that is translated violated in verse 2, that's the Hebrew word henna, that that means Shechem raped Dinah. But the thing is, a close examination of the Hebrew and a survey of that word throughout Scripture does not support that conclusion. Now, the other Hebrew words that you have in this same context are not conclusive toward rape either. When it says that he took her, that doesn't indicate a kidnapping. That just means that he brought her, brought her to his quarters. It says he lay with her, or in this case lay her, That indicates certainly sinful sex, illicit sex, sex outside of marriage, but it does not indicate more than that. So it's this Hebrew word henna that's translated violated that is the real focus among the commentators. And again, the common assumption is just that it is rape. But there are two modern Hebrew scholars that I could find who did the kind of research that needs to be done in this area and on this word. One of these uh, Hebrew scholars is Jewish. The other one is Dutch. And they have done the really deep, detailed, exhaustive studies of this Hebrew word henna, particularly looking at the 13 passages in the Old Testament where it is used in reference to a woman. And both of these scholars, after all this detailed research, came to the conclusion that a rape is not indicated in Genesis chapter 34. And here's the kicker. Both of these scholars are women. So no one can say that they are anti-woman or they're blaming the victim. They're simply doing in-depth Hebrew analysis, calling balls and strikes straight up. And I believe that they are exactly correct. Henna literally means to lower. And it's almost always used in reference to a woman being lowered from the high social status that was accorded to virgin daughters of Israel. You might be from a poor family, but if you were a virgin daughter in Israel, you carried a high social status as a virgin Daughter, there is uh, so it would refer to a lowering from that high social status that has been occasioned by some form of unbiblical sexual activity. There is only one time in Scripture that henna is used of not a social lowering, but a physical lowering as in a, a physical pushing down or a pinning down as in a rape And that is with the rape of Tamar by Amnon in 2 Samuel 13. Tamar and Amnon being half-siblings, both children of David the king, but by different wives. The thing is, the Hebrew word order is very significant, and the Hebrew word order in 2 Samuel 13 is different than it is in Genesis 34. Genesis 34 reflecting the typical word order that appears in Scripture. And we see that not only is the word order different, but we also see that the attitude and actions of Amnon in 2 Samuel 13 are very different from those of Shechem in Genesis 34. Look at 2 Samuel 13 verse 11. Amnon took hold of Tamar and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me. Now that's our word. Do not push me down. Do not pin me down. For no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Verse 13. Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. In other words, Go talk to our father and ask to marry me. He will give you permission. It's like, do this the right way. Now, I believe here that Tamar knows that her father is not going to grant Amnon permission to marry his half-sister, both of them being the children of David. I believe this is simply something she's doing to pry, to break free from this situation. This is the equivalent of her crying out for help. She's trying to get out of this situation, avoid this rape, which he intends, by having him go to the father, full knowing that David is saying, no, you're not marrying your half sister. No. And then that ends the affair. You see... For rape, uh, there has to be some form of resistance or crying out or something that indicates that the sexual activity is not consensual. That's still the law today in the majority of states. In the Old Testament, if a rape occurred out in the countryside where there's no one around, then it was presumed that the woman had cried out. If it happened in a village or a city where there's a lot of people around to hear, then there had to be independent verification that she cried out. But you see, in Tamar's situation, crying out is not going to do any good whatsoever, even though there are people around to hear, because the only ones around to hear in Amnon's royal quarters are his servants who work for him. So them hearing Tamar cry out is not going to do any good. But she is crying out when she says, go ask father. He will, he will give me to you. Go ask him. That was her way of doing that. In any event, it says in verse 14 that he would not heed her voice being stronger than she. He forced her. He pressed her down. He pinned her down and lay with her. And then Amnon, now here is the psychology of rape. This is it. Amnon hated her exceedingly and said to her, arise, be gone. So she said to him, no, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And here's the servant. This is why it doesn't do any good to cry out here. He called his servant and said, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. In other words, take out the trash. That's the psychology of rape. That is not at all the psychology we see from Shechem toward Dinah in Genesis 34. Shechem, we're told, loved Dinah, and so he seeks to marry her and to reverse the social luring that he has brought upon her. Now, they're both involved in this. They both are blameworthy, but the man is held to be more blameworthy, more responsible, not only because he is the man, but also because he is the prince. He's the prince of the city. He has a lot more power than her, but, and not only that, he's the kind of person that Dinah or any other young lady would probably be extremely flattered to receive attention from. So he, he wants to marry her, he loves her, and through the marriage, he's going to reverse this lowering that he has brought upon her. When verse three says that Shechem was strongly attracted to Dinah, the Hebrew literally says, his soul clung to her. Using the same Hebrew word that God used in Genesis 2.24 when it says, a man shall cleave to his wife. This is the psychology in the heart and mind of Shechem. So Shechem's heart and, and his actions are the complete opposite of what we saw with Amnon. And the final critical piece of evidence here is the fact that when Simeon and Levi charge Shechem with wrong in verse 31, and obviously they have every incentive to charge him with the most serious thing they can, they do not charge him with rape. They charge him with treating Dinah like a harlot. Harlotry is not rape. Harlotry is sinful. Harlotry is illicit sex, but it is consensual. They did not charge him with rape. This is the situation that's going to be addressed later on under the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, and Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And when you put those two passages together, they provide that a man who finds a young woman who is not betrothed, and he takes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man shall give to her father fifty shekels of silver, which was a lot of money back in that day, and he shall marry her and shall never be able to divorce her because he has humbled her, he has lowered her. Now the father, however, does not have to accept the marriage. He can refuse the man, Exodus 22:26), but the man still has to pay the money. It's these principles, even though this is before the law of Moses, it's these principles that Shechem is acting in accord with, except nobody has to force him to marry Dinah. He wants to marry Dinah. He makes that clear both through his father's appeal to Jacob, Simeon and Levi and through his own personal appeal. And he humbles himself. Look at verse 11. Let me find favor in your eyes. Now, he's the prince, but he does not engage in any kind of power play here. He says, let me find favor in your eyes. And he realizes that they are angry and rightfully so. And so he offers to pay more than the customary amount. He offers to pay any amount. He says, you name the amount. I will pay it without hesitation. He wants to assuage their righteous anger. He wants to take away Dinah's shame and raise her back up. Now, remember that older brothers who are grown were customarily involved with the father in marriage negotiations, and they were given a lot of say-so with regard to a younger sister. You have to remember, the father is not going to be around forever. He's going to get old even before he dies. And so it will be the grown brothers of the sister if she happens to be mistreated later on who are going to have to stand up for her and do something about it. And remember that Jacob is no spring chicken at this point. Jacob is over 100 years old at this point. We know that because Genesis 47 verse 9 tells us that Jacob was 130 years old when he comes to see Joseph in Egypt. And we know that at that same time, Joseph was 39 years old. Thirty, when he first stood before Pharaoh, plus seven years of plenty, plus two years of famine, make him thirty-nine, when Jacob is one hundred and thirty. You do the math, you back it up, you realize that Jacob was ninety-one years old when Joseph was born. They left Laban when Joseph was six, so Jacob is ninety-seven. We know in chapter thirty-seven that Jacob, Joseph is seventeen which means that Jacob is somewhere around 106 years old at the time of these events. And even if it weren't the custom of the day, involving Dinah's grown older brothers was just plain prudent and practical for the reasons that I've already mentioned. Now here all the indications are that Jacob is satisfied with Hamor and Shechem's offer. And so that's why we don't hear anything out of them. He's leaving it with Simeon and Levi because they too independently need to be satisfied. So when Simeon and Levi ask for Shechem and Hamor and all the men of the city to be circumcised, it seems like they're just being prudent and careful about intermarriage. In other words, they're seeking for oneness of faith and culture before any sort of intermarriage take place. Note how Dinah's brothers speak in terms of being one people as a result of the circumcision. Verses 15 and 16. On this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become One people. Now, what about this? Was covenanting and intermarriage allowed for God's people at this particular time? Well, long story short, what we find is that God's strict prohibition against covenanting and intermarriage was specific to the invasion of Canaan under Joshua. That will come later on, several generations later. When the iniquity of the Amorite was complete, to use God's language to Moses, I mean to Abraham in Genesis 15. Because at that time, God's command is for Israel to exterminate the peoples of the land, to wipe them out. That's four generations in the future from Genesis 15. You see, even with unbelievers, God does not vomit them out of the land, to use the language of the Old Testament, unless and until their idolatry, their sexual perversion, their child sacrifice and the like demands their death as a matter of justice. That was not the case in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though you had individual cities such as Sodom and Gomorrah, which reached that level and God destroyed them. The bottom line is that covenanting and intermarriage were always matters of extreme caution and and the need for extreme prudence. But they were not strictly forbidden during the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we see Abraham, for example, forming alliances and covenants with the people of the land when warranted. In Genesis 14, He forms an alliance with three Amorite brothers. He lived right next to them, and all indications are that these three Amorite brothers converted to faith in the Lord, even though they remained uncircumcised. And they helped Abraham defeat the kings of the east. They fought right next to him. Abraham also entered a formal covenant with Abimelech, a Philistine ruler, in Genesis chapter 21. Once again, all the indications are that Abimelech had come to faith in the Lord because he invited Abraham to stay wherever he wanted for as long as he wanted anywhere in his land. And Abraham, in fact, stayed there for a long time. So in Genesis 34, again, this is Salem, the former city of Melchizedek, the city where Abraham bought the burial place for him and Sarah and later for Jacob, and he, in fact, purchased it up the line from the same family as Hamor and Shechem. And furthermore, Hamor, Shechem, and all the men of Salem are going to submit to circumcision. Well, we know what happens. Simon and Levi are using God's covenant and its sign of circumcision not to advance faith in the Lord but to serve their own designs for extreme vengeance. Not just vengeance on Shechem, who was guilty of wrongful conduct with regard to Dinah, but on every single man of the city. Every wife in this city is going to be rendered a widow. Every child in this city is going to be rendered fatherless. And when the men are incapacitated, Simeon and Levi ride in and slaughter them. And then their brothers join in and they plunder the whole town, including all the animals, all the women, and all the children. And thus we see the justification for the judgment of Genesis 49, where Simeon and Levi are cursed and destined to be scattered throughout Israel rather than participating in the inheritance of the land. Listen to the way Old Testament scholar Victor Hamilton translate Genesis 49, 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi, brothers they destroyed. They treated violently their covenanters. Into their counsel let not my soul enter, and with their company let not my being be united. For in their anger they murdered a man, at will they hamstrung an ox, Cursed be their fury so fierce and their rage so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob. I will disperse them in Israel. It's an interesting reference in here to murdering a man. We know that happened. But hamstrunging an ox, it says they took all the animals. There's nothing in the account about hamstringing an ox. But ox here is being used as a symbol or type. An ox, it was a clean animal and therefore represented believers uh, in the Old Testament typology. And an ox was particularly representative of someone who was a very powerful believer, such as a priest, for example. And so this reference here to hamstringing an ox calls to mind the background of Deuteronomy 22.10 that would later be given under the law of Moses. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey Together, an ox is a clean animal. A donkey is an unclean animal. You shall not plow with them together. They're not going to be able to pull in the harness the same way. They're not going to be able to pull together. Here's the interesting thing. Hamor means donkey. So this is not talking about animals. This is talking about Hamor. And this is talking about Jacob. Being concerned and extra careful about covenanting together, joining together as one people, intermarriage, that's being careful that you don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. But you see, Hamor and his men, he was a donkey that was becoming an ox by entering God's covenant through circumcision. But he never got a chance to pull together in the same harness because he was hamstrung. That's what it's talking about. Jacob also was an ox who was hamstrung through the actions of Simeon and Levi because his work and witness for the Lord were basically completely crippled. Now, believe it or not, there are commentators who diminish this curse from Genesis chapter 49, attributing it to Jacob's favoritism of Rachel and her children over Leah and her children. The thing is, the context of Genesis 49 simply doesn't support that. Consider what Jacob says in the very next verse, verse 8, right after he has communicated the curse of Simeon and Levi. Next verse, Judah You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah was born to Leah, not Rachel. So Jacob is not playing favorites in Genesis 49, nor is he pronouncing his own will or desires. He is speaking the will and words of God as a prophet of God. Because God is the one who ensures that the words spoken through Jacob come true. Going forward, the tribes of Simeon and Levi simply wither in the coming generations. By the time of the entrance into the land of Canaan under Joshua, they are by far the smallest tribes. At that point, the average tribe had over 53,000 fighting men. That means 20 and up and capable of fighting. Judah had over 76,000 fighting men. Simeon had 22, less than half the average. And Levi had less than that. Levi had only 23,000 total males from the babies on up. And when the land's divided up under Joshua, Simeon doesn't receive a separate inheritance, but as I mentioned before, just a few cities Within Judah's Judah's territory. So Simeon is essentially swallowed up by Judah. But here's the thing even when God's severe discipline comes, God always provides a path of grace for it. It's not going to be the same path, but He always provides a path of grace because by becoming part of Judah, Simeon ends up being blessed by the grace of the Lord. Now, Levi isn't going to receive anything, any part of the inheritance of the land. But again, God always provides a path of grace forward. That path of grace came at the famous golden calf incident when it's the men of Levi who rally to the Lord with Moses and Aaron. At the Lord's command, they go out and kill the men of Israel who were actually guilty of actively worshiping the golden calf. This is why Moses grinds the calf up and puts it in the water and makes the people drink it. This is the ritual of jealousy. When a woman would, uh, would be charged this way, they would write the charge in the dust of the ground of the tabernacle, which, of course, is filthy. And drink it. And if she was guilty, she would become sick. How do they know which men are guilty of actually worshiping the golden calf? Because they're sick. They're not just randomly killing people. They're killing those who are sick under the ritual of jealousy, having drank the golden calf. And so the Levites' actions at the golden calf incident are basically the exact opposite of their actions At Salem. At Sinai, with the Golden Calf incident, they did God's will. At Salem, they did their own will. At Sinai, the men they killed were all guilty of committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. At Salem, most all of the men they killed were innocent. And so we see Levi is redeemed at the golden calf incident. God takes Levi as his priest. They don't share an inheritance in the land. He gives them 48 Levitical cities. They don't share in the, in the inheritance of the land, but they do share in the inheritance of the Lord. God always provides a path of grace for it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.